So I just wanted to say, um, when you guys listen to this, it'll be past, but we're recording on May, like, well, during Maybon. So we wanted to say a happy Maybon to all of you witches. Yes. Um, and welcome. Uh, I'm glad we are doing this yesterday because not only would it be during the Maybon season, but our harvest moon was yesterday. By the light of the silvery moon. Okay. So welcome to the 65th episode of the True North Witches episode. This does actually happen to be our fifth creepy cast um, between Ooh. Steph and Hi. Yes. And Steph is the very unprepared witchy tip of the day. <laughs> and Brooke is the uh, witchy card pull of the day. Which I Tarot pull. So your witchy tip of the day, you're gonna, you guys are gonna love this. When it comes, to, when it comes to deity work, a lot of people seem to think that deities are disappearing. Now, I'm probably gonna get canceled for this. However, canceled fact, for this. your deities, the deities aren't disappearing. Try considering that maybe your time with them is finished. And that they're leaving you for the opportunity for another deity to take um, the front stage um, in your practice. So my witchy tip is to pay attention to the signs around you. Um, but also be careful, because just because you see um, a random crow, it doesn't mean the Morrigan are suddenly, like, approaching you. Um, I would say be cautious and um, look for more than one sign. Yeah. Also, I would like to say, I do talk about how many years that I've worked with Hecate, but they have also been on and off years. So I worked with the Hecate during high school, but then um, I've worked with other deities, um, Morgan included, um, as well in conjunction with, and uh, sometimes Hecate has stepped to the side and I have worked with others instead. Like I'm really vibing Loki right now. getting the Norse not like working specifically with no but I've been I've been I've been very drawn to Norse everything and I think it's because of my I think it's because of my dig into my ancestry and all of that Mm. um, and trying to go really go back to like my family roots and what that means for my practice and like what that means like for me Um, I want to do the ancestry not the not the DNA I want to do like trace my family tree stuff well yeah I did the family tree but I also I did the DNA one too um as like a Christmas gift for myself during COVID yeah they were still doing they right because they have to deal with people's saliva yeah yeah Um, I bet they had coming up with that much extra extra 
yeah coming up with that much saliva by the way um super disgusting made me gag Um, but Uh, i found oddly enough (laughs) (laughs) um oddly enough that um my roots are um very norse it's like a split of norse and um and uh anglos like um uh, I'm, I'm Portuguese and a mix of other things, mostly Portuguese. And there isn't a lot of like a documented um, witchcraft or witchcraft practices in Portugal. It is very um, anything that would have been uh, considered. You have to be living there and seeing someone who practiced it. Um, there aren't any documentations really. No, it's been very... Um swept um, under the rug it's neat it's, it's like a neo-pagan yeah and um catholicism really took over there and it, it is very um catholic based so um i've been leaning towards my um anglo-saxon roots <laughs> yeah you were you were talking about the the spit thing um i didn't do i didn't do anything like dna testing but i had to um because they wanted to see, one of my naturopaths wanted to see like what I was deficient in. And so not only did I have to get blood taken, which you know my take on needles going into my skin. Yeah, you get tattoos. Okay, it's not the needle (laughs) that I'm afraid of. If I don't see the needle, I'm fine. I was fine getting my two vaccinations. It's stuff crawling under my skin from too many horror movies with Stephanie. (laughs) (laughs) that is my that is my fear Um, I do love horror (laughs) me too me too but it's the creepy curly under my skin um so uh but one of the things I had to do was spit into one of those vials where you have that line where you have to spit to and coming up yeah coming up with that much yep was very very uncomfortable (laughs) also also you know I like I don't have a dry mouth at all. Like I have a comfortably like okay, like, moist mouth. Moist mouth. <laughs> so but anyway, like, but like I. So found... would you say that you? Would you say that you speak moistly to people? No, <laughs> I definitely don't do that. But like I have a, like a good balance. My my mouth is like like I'm not always having to drink water because I'm always parched. But when I had to do that test, it was like suddenly my mouth was dry. Oh, yeah. Because you were thinking about it. Yeah, because I was thinking about it. And suddenly my mouth was Mm -hmm. dry. It was most uncomfortable. So, our tarot pull of the day. Plus, um, I almost, almost bought the Green Witch's Tarot today. And I did not. I keep almost buying the Green Witch's Tarot. Oh wait, no, no, not the Green Witches, because I have, I have, no, I don't have that you one. Don't I have, have that one. This, you have the unseen. I have the woodwind. Oh, I have the yeah. unseen tarot. Um, no, the wild unknown tarot. The wild I've unknown. Got, is the one and then I've got the woodward woodland tarot. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not the Green Witch. It's the Earth Green Earth, or it's the um Earth Magic one, the oh, Earth okay. Magic Oracle. Okay. Yeah, I keep yeah, almost I have my eye on that one, one too. 
very green witchy oriented recently and mm-hmm. I think that's because we're like harvesting our tomatoes and stuff like that and I just got my canning stuff in today like the like the tools well I have to eat salad every day now so like I feel like I'm just so much closer to the earth <laughs> so I have the knight of pentacles in reverse um, <laughs> you know what you know what um and in oh Sefi, as much as I love you, I think you need to read this one in reverse. In reverse? Yeah. I don't think so. I Uh, think you're wrong. So in right side up, for those of you who only read right side up, it's efficiency, routine, uh, conservatism, and methodical. And for upside down, like it is right now, it's laziness, boredom and feeling stuck okay that is so rude of you like I don't even (laughs) um to be fair both of you and I have been feeling a little stuck when it comes to both our practice and the shop yeah uh so the (laughs) for the knight of pentacles the poem is time you have so much of it left be it an hour or a decade ahead. Look around you and make meaning for yourself. The work you put in is the life that comes out. The course you set out on is right for now. Your vehicle, your itinerary, follow your plan to come out unscathed. Um, rude? Rude. But you know what? It's okay because I've got the universe has you back. So let's see what the universe has to say. Energy flows where my intention goes because intention is everything. Was that was that the universe got my back? Yeah. It, it's, it's more like the universe called my bitch ass out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just to be fair. Um <laughs> yeah. So this creepy cast, uh, we do have one listener story. I hope we haven't said it. I usually try to mark off the ones that we've said, so I hope we haven't said this one. Uh, we got one listener story. We've got two cryptids and some, I've got one haunted place and Stephanie has some creepy shit that happened to her. Yeah, I am also going to be reading you the story called The Diary of a Poltergeist. Um, Currently, the haunting sounds that you are hearing are the dog um, wanting attention. (laughs) Um, So, I'm going to go on, uh, unless you wanted it. No. Uh, I'm going to go on, and I am going to get on the correct email page would be a a good start to my day and I will tell you our listener story now (laughs) you've heard this name numerous times before uh this is from our good friend Nick uh he had an incident at our antique mall um and our flea market they're one and the same and uh, this goes at the antiques mall, 
uh, being in the aisle, having someone walk up, and he had someone walk up to him and ask him if he could move because he's in a wheelchair, move his chair a little uh, as he was walking the aisle. After he moved, he looked up to ask if it was enough space, but there was no one in the aisle or anywhere near him uh, in any in any of the booths. So he went up to the front to ask whether the lady was that just asked him to kindly let her pass so that he could tell her that he was story. And, and the person at the front desk say, the only customers in the store are you and Brooke. There's no female staff on the premises. Ooh. Um, because they only have two, two female staff the last time I was there and three male staff. And um, sometimes, and and it was, I remember the story because <laughs> I was rummaging the aisles. Um, this is not um, uncommon, let's just say. Um, as we know, spirits don't always just attach themselves to places. They also attach themselves to things as, Jessica and Victoria are clear examples of. Those are our haunted dolls. Yeah. Um, which my dog will not leave alone, by the way. Like, I've put her on a high shelf, and Raven yeah. will sit there and whine I at think, my chair. I think she, Jessica likes her new spot. I think Victoria likes being able to be out of a box. Yeah, probably. Um, that that's fine. so. Yeah, so um, not um, not uncommon at the antique mall, any antique mall, because things spirits like to speak to to speak to to attach themselves to things and objects as well as places. And people, actually, that, that, that like to attach themselves to people, too. Um, but yeah, that was our single listener story, since I've been trying to get you guys to send in your stories. I have been doing it. Send in your stories, guys. We like to read them <laughs> on the podcast. Does that sound like a broke, broke, broken record? Broken record. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I am talking to you about the Jersey Devil. Not to be mistaken for the New Jersey Devil's NHL hockey team. So in southern New Jersey and Philadelphia folklore of the United States, the Jersey Devil, also known as the Leeds Devil, is a legendary creature said to inhabit the Pine Barrens of South Jersey. This creature is described as a flying biped with hooves, but there are many variations. The common description is that of a bipedal kangaroo-like or wyvern-like uh, creature with a horse Weaver? or goat-like head. Weavern? Weavern. Weavern? Oh. like creature. That's the pronunciation that I've heard of it. Mm. Could be different. With a horse or goat-like head, leathery bat-like wings, horns, small arms with clawed hands, legs with cloven hooves, and a forked tail. It has been reported to move quickly and is often described as emitting a high-pitched, blood-curdling scream. You know, 
maybe one maybe I have a couple of students who could be infant Jersey Devils. It's quite possible. Especially with the blood curdling screams. Because why not? <laughs> According to popular folklore, the Jersey Devil originated with a Pine Barrens resident named Jane Leeds, known as Mother Leeds. The legend states that Mother Leeds had 12 children, and after finding she was pregnant for the 13th time, cursed the child in frustration, crying that the child would be the devil. In 1735, Mother Leeds was in labor on a stormy night while her friends gathered around her. Born as a normal child, the 13th child changed to a creature with hooves, goat's head, bat wings, and a forked tail. Growling and screaming, the child beat everyone with its tail before flying up the chimney and heading into the pines. In some versions of the tale, Mother Leeds was supposedly a witch and the child's father was the devil. <laughs> um, was the devil himself. Some versions of the legend also state that there was a subsequent attempt by local clergymen to exorcise the creature from the pine barrens. Prior to the early 1900s and before the series of reported sightings of the creature during 1909, the Jersey Devil was referred to as Leeds Devil or the Devil of Leeds, either in connection with the local Leeds family or the eponymous, eponymous southern New Jersey town, Leeds Point. And Mother Leeds um, has been identified by some as Deborah Leeds, on grounds that Deborah Leeds' husband, Jaffet Leeds, named 12 children in the will he wrote during 1736, which is compatible with the legend. Deborah and Jaffet Le Leeds also lived in Leeds Point section of what is now Atlantic County, New Jersey, which is commonly the location of the Jersey Devil story. Um, Brian Regal, historian of science, at uh, Keene University theorizes the story of Mother Leeds rather than being based on a single historical person originated from colonial Southern New Jersey religio-political disputes that became the subject of folklore and gossip among the local population. According to Regal, folk legends concerning these historical disputes evolved through the years and ultimately resulted in the modern popular legend of the which would make sense. The kind of stuff that people say about each other during um, a political like um, run is insane. So it wouldn't surprise me if during a political run, someone decided was that the Leeds family was um, cursed in some way. In the early 20th century, we contends that colonial era political intrigue involving early New Jersey politician Benjamin Franklin and Franklin's rival um, almanac publisher Daniel Leeds resulted in the Leeds family being described as monsters. And it was Daniel Leeds' negative description as the Leeds devil rather than any actual creature that cre created the later legend of the Jersey devil. Much like the mother Leeds of the Jersey devil myth, Daniel Leeds' third wife had given birth to nine children, a large number of children even up for the time. Leeds' second wife and first daughter had both died during childbirth. As a royal surveyor with strong allegiance to the British crown, Leeds had also sur surveyed and acquired land in the Egg Harbor area located within the Pine Barrens. The land was inherited by Leeds' son and family and is now known as Leeds Point, 
one of the areas of the Pine Barrens currently most associated with the Jersey Devil legend and the alleged Jersey Devil sightings. Starting in the 17th century, English Quakers established settlements in southern New Jersey, the region in which the Pine Barrens are located. Daniel Leeds, a Quaker and a prominent person of the pre-revolution colonial southern New Jersey, became ostracized by his Quaker congregation after his 1867 publications, uh, publication of almanacs containing astro astrological symbols and writings. Leeds' fellow Quakers deemed the astrology in these almanacs as to, to pagan or blasphemous, and the almanacs were censored and destroyed by the local Quaker community. In response to and in spite of censorship, Leeds continued to publish even more esoteric astrolo astrological Christian writings and became increasingly fascinated with Christian occultism, Christian mysticism, cosmology, demonology, and angelology, and natural magic. In, in the 1690s, after his almanacs and writings were further censored as blasphemous and, or heretical by the Philadelphia Quaker meeting, these continued to dispute the Quaker community, converting the Anglo Anglicanism and publishing anti-Quaker tracts, criticizing Quaker theology, and accusing Quakers of being anti-monarchists. In the ensuring dispute between Leeds and the Southern New Jersey Quakers over Leeds' accusations, Leeds was endorsed by the much malinged British royal governor of New Jersey, Lord Cumbry. Despised among the Quaker communities, Leeds also worked as the counselor to Lord Cumbry about this time, considering Leeds as a traitor for aiding the Crown and rejecting Quaker beliefs. The Quaker Burlington meeting of Southern New Jersey subsequently dismissed Leeds as evil. During 1716, Daniel Leeds' son, the Leeds inherited his father's almanac business, which continued to use astrological content and eventually completed, or competed with Benjamin Franklin's popular Poor Richard Almanac. The competition between the two men intensified when during 1733, Franklin satir satirically used astrology in his almanac to predict the Titan Leeds death on October of that same year. Though Franklin's prediction was intended as a joke at his competitor's expense and a means to boost almanac sales, Titan Leeds was apparently offended at the death prediction, publishing a public admonish, admon, public admonition of Franklin as a fool and a liar. In a published response, Franklin mocked Titan Leeds outrage and humorously suggests that in fact Titan Leeds had died in accordance to the earlier prediction and was thus riding his almanac as a ghost um, resurrected from the grave to haunt the torment and torment Franklin. Franklin continued to jokingly refer to Titan Leeds as a ghost even after Titan Leeds actually Titan, Titan Leeds actual death during 1738. Daniel Leeds blasphemous and occultist reputation and his no pro-monarchy stance in the largely anti-monarchist colonial south of New Jersey, combined with Benjamin Franklin later con uh, continuous depictions of Titan Leeds as a ghost, may have originated or contributed to the local folk legend of a so-called Leeds devil lurking in the pre-barrens, or pine barrens. During 1728, Titan Leeds began to include the Leeds family crest on the um, masthead of his almanacs. The Leeds family's crest depicted a wyvern, a bat-winged dragon, 
like legendary creature that stands upright on two clawed feet. Regal notes that the uh, wyvern on the Leeds family crest is reminiscent of the popular description of the Jersey Devil. The inclusion of this family crest on Leeds almanacs may have further contributed to the Leeds family's poor reputation among locals and possibly influenced the popular description of the Leeds Devil or Jersey Devil. The fearsome appearance of the crest's wyvern and the increasing animosity among local South Jersey residents towards royal, royal um, aristocracy and nobility um, may have helped facilitate the legend of the Leeds Devil and the association of the Leeds family with the devils and monsters. Regal notes that by the late 1700s and early 1800s, uh, at the latest, the Leeds Devil had become an um, uh, ambiguous legendary monster or a ghost story in the southern New Jersey area. Into the early to mid 19th century, stories continued to circulate in southern New Jersey of the Leeds Devil, a monstrous one, monster wandering in the Pine Barrens. An oral tradition of Leeds Devil monster ghost stories subsequently became established in the Pine Barrens area. Although the Leeds Devil legend has apparently existed since the 18th century, Regal states the more modern depiction of the Jersey Devil, as well as the now pervasive Jersey Devil name, first became truly standardized in current form during the early 20th, 20th century. Um, during the pre-revolutionary period, the Leeds family who called the Pine Barrens home um, soured its relationship with the Quaker majority. The Quakers saw no hurry to give their former fellow religionists an easy time in circles of gossip. His wives had all died, as had several children. Wives, son, plural? Yes. Oh. Um, as had several children, his son, Titan, stood accused by Benjamin Franklin as being a ghost. The family crest had winged dragons on it in a time when thoughts of independence were being born these issues made the Leeds family political and religious monsters from all this over time the legend of the Leeds devil was born references to the jersey devil do not appear in newspapers or other printed materials until the 20th century the first major flap came in 1909 it is from these sightings that the popular image of the creature's bat-like wings horse head claws and general air of a dragon become standardized. When in indeed many reference to a Leeds devil or devil of Leeds appear in earlier printed material prior to widespread usage of the Jersey devil name, during 1859, the Atlantic Monthly published an article detailing the Leeds devil folk tales popular among the Pine Barrens residents or Pine Rats. A newspaper from 1887 describes sightings of the winged when creature referred to as the devil of Leeds, allegedly spotted near the Pine Barrens and well-known among the locals, populace of Burlington County, New Jersey. <sighs> Whenever he went near it, it would give a most unearthly yell that frightened the dogs. It whipped at every dog on the, on the place. That thing, said the uh, colonel, is not a bird nor an animal, but it is the Leeds Devil, according to the description, and it was born over the Evesman, Burlington County. Evesham, a hundred years ago, 
There is no mistake about it. I never saw the horrible critter myself, but I can remember well when it was roaming around fifty years ago, and when it was hunted by men and dogs and shot by the best marksmen there were in all South Jersey, but could not be killed. There isn't a family in Burlington or any of the adjoining counties that does not know the, the Leeds Devil, and it was the bugaboo to frighten children when, uh, well, he was the boy. So many claims of sightings. According to legend, while visiting uh, the Hanover Mill Works to inspect the cannonballs being forged, Commodore Stephen Decatur sighted a flying creature and fired a cannonball directly upon it to no effect. Joseph Bonaparte, elder brother of Napoleon, is also claimed to have seen the Jersey Devil while hunting on his Borden Town Estate about 1820. During 1840, the Jersey Devil was blamed for several livestock killings. Similar attacks were reported during 1841, accompanied by tracks and screams. In Greenwich, during December 1925, a local farmer shot an unidentified animal as it attempted to steal his chickens and then photographed the corpse. Afterwards, he claimed that none of the 100 people he showed it could identify it. On July 27th, 1937, an unknown animal with red eyes seen by resident, residents of Downington, Pennsylvania, was compared to the Jersey Devil by a reporter of Pennsylvanian Bulletin. Um, in 1951, a group of Gibson, New Jersey boys claimed to have seen a monster matching the devil's description, and claims of a corpse matching the Jersey Devil's description arose in 1957. During 1860, tracks and noises heard near May's Landing were claimed to be from the Jersey Devil. During the same year, the merchants of Camden offered the $10,000 reward for the capture of the Jersey Devil, even offering to build a private zoo to house the creature if it was captured. <sighs> Sightings in 1909. During the week of January 16, 1909, through a January through January 23rd, 1909, newspapers of the time published hundreds of claimed encounters with the Jersey Devil from all over the state. Among alleged encounters publicized that week were claimed the creature attacked a trolley cart in Haddon Heights and a social club in Camden. Police in Camden and Bristol, Pennsylvania supposedly fired on the creature to no effect. Other reports initially concerned unidentified footprints in the snow, but soon sightings of creatures resembled the Jersey Devil were being reported throughout New Jer or South Jersey, as far away as Delaware and Western Maryland. The widespread newspaper coverage created fear throughout the Delaware Valley, prompting a number of schools to close and workers to stay home. Vigilant or vigilante groups and groups of hunters roamed the pines and countrysides in search of the devil. During this period, it is rumored that the Philadelphia Zoo posted a $10,000 reward for the creature. The offer prompted a variety of hoaxes, including a kangaroo equipped with artificial claws and bat wings. Um, one of the first reported Jersey Devil sightings um, was the, in 1812. It was the Joseph Bonaparte, Napoleon's older brother, claimed he saw the Jersey Devil while hunting. And then it grew because um, of animal attacks, strange footprints, and reports filed by eyewitnesses who supposedly encountered the beast. Um, and then this is an article um, that someone posted from back then. Uh, Fly ri rival of Leeds Devil has Jersey people frightened. Hoof prints in the snow, 
where wiring noises in the air and other uncanny manifestations reach boarding town in Mount Holly after masking sensation in lower counties near natives remain indoors after sundown. Uh, and that was a Trenton Times story on a string of Jersey sightings in January 1909. And then it became a craze. <laughs> and then it became a craze. Like, yeah. Like yeah. The Jersey Devil fad died out for a while until 1927 when a taxi driver in Salem City allegedly encountered the Jersey Devil while changing a tire. The man told the police the winged creature was pounding on the roof of the cab. Guess the Jersey Devil really needed a ride that night. <laughs> and there were actual wanted posters out for this thing. Wanted. A reward offered for the capture, dead or alive, of the Leeds monster, also known as the Jersey Devil. And then it describes the creature. And it says in big, big letters, it goes, approach with extreme caution. $250,000 reward. Oh. Mm-hmm. What was this in? 1960. Oh, that's quite a bit of money in 1960, though. Mm-hmm. It's quite a bit of money now. Yeah. In 1960, it would be even, even more. Um, in 1960, several residents of May's Landing heard horrifying screams in the night. There was no explanation for the noises, and people began to panic. Police hung flyers assuring residents that the Jersey Devil was a hoax, but a circus owner countered the appeal by offering a $100,000 reward for anyone who could capture the creature. No one received said award. <laughs> um, Mary Riftser Christensen told Weird New Jersey that she got the heebie-jeebies one night in 1972. Oh, the heebie-jeebies, eh? It's the 70s, okay? When she spotted the Jersey Devil on Green Tree Road. Christensen was driving from Blackwood to Glassboro when she saw says she saw a towering figure crossing the road about 20 feet, five feet beyond behind her car. She described the creep figure as standing taller than the average man with thick haunches like a goat and a huge woolly head. Um, a family walks along Green Bank toward the bridge over the spillway in Batstow. Bets, in Waston State Forest, and they claim to have seen it as well. Um, forest strain- rangers were are experts in on the wildlife that inhabits the woods they patrol. But in 1980, Wharton State Forest Chief Ranger Alan Farlin saw something that both grossed him out and stumped his wild animal knowledge. A brutal scene on a South Jersey farm where a pack of pigs had been killed. He reported that the backs of their heads were eaten and their bodies were scratched and torn. However, there are no tracks surrounding the bodies and no blood on the ground. Could the Jersey Devil have been hankering for some bacon? (laughs) In 1988, an Asbury Park press reporter told the story of Howell Township resident who claimed to have encountered the Jersey Devil seven years prior. This eyewitness must have been up close and personal with old JD because he described the beast right down to his large teeth. In the late 1980s, a group of friends went camping and riding dirt bikes in the Pine Barrens while riding down a trail about 100 yards from camp. The bikes all stalled. One said it could have had to do with the terrain or the nearby power plant. However, 
As suddenly as the bikes quit running, the men heard a piercing, inhuman scream coming from the woods. When they returned to camp, those who stayed behind said they also heard the screams. That evening, one of the men went into a local bar and told the bartender about the screams in the woods. The man informed the visitor that he had most likely had an encounter with the Jersey Devil. Most likely. In 1993, forest ranger John Irwin was, it was driving along. Was after you were born, sir? This is the year after I was born, yeah. Uh, along the Mullica River when he saw a strange creature blocking the road ahead of him. He said it was about six feet tall with horns and matted black fur. The two stared at each other for several minutes before the creature turned and ran into the forest. <laughs> Llama or devil. One of the most recent sightings occurred in Galloway Township. In October 2015, Little Egg Harbor resident David Black said he was driving along Route 9 New York Golf Course when he saw what he thought was a llama walking in and out of the tree line <laughs> on the side of the road. Suddenly, the creature spread its wings and flew away. The the, He captured the beast's image with his cell phone, and the photo went viral. Because cell phone cameras those days were so reliable. Right? A few days after David Black supposedly captured the Jersey Devil in his cell phone to the camera, Emily Martin shot a video of what appears to be the same creature after... She spotted it on Old Port Republic Road near Leeds Point. Both Black and Martin's for neither the image nor the video were edited or set up. Some who have seen the photo and video are have their suspicions. Let me and just put video it. quality was so good in those days. So oh good. yeah. So good. So we could totally tell when it's unedited that it was totally the thing that was in it okay the video i just watched the video it's probably going to come up in the recording um but it it (laughs) no 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 you have to send it to me yeah oh my god just how bad people have people have to chill out Oh God! Oh God! Steffi's laughing. Steffi is laughing. Oh! May the chaos ensue. Yep. One evening, while taking out the trash, Fran Copel, owner of the Smithville Inn and Village in Galloway Township, saw a strange shadow projected onto the wall before her. She said she looked up and saw the shadow of a beast with wings. While the image had to be frightening, Kupal said she felt calm, as if the Jersey Devil was watching over her. Perhaps he was curious about what she what was in her trash. Uh, never be curious by what's in your trash. That could end yeah. badly. Yeah. Like physical and metaphysical all at the same time. Like, what if there yeah. was a bean beaver or a or a regular size bear or a raccoon? Um, so I got my information from Wikipedia as well as um, the New Jersey Times website. And that's what I have for you on the Jersey Devil. Okay, so I am going to talk to you about my haunted location, which is actually on Toronto Island, which is Gibraltar Point Lighthouse. 
Uh, like I said, it is located on the Toronto Islands in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, which is about an hour and a half on a good day away from where Stephanie and I live. It began in 1808. It is the oldest existing lighthouse on the Great Lakes, uh, which is, for those of you who don't know where Toronto is located, so the Great Lake that Toronto is on is Lake Ontario? I'm sorry, what? Ontario or, Sim or Erie? is Toronto. Ontario, right? Toronto's on? Yeah. Like, okay. Um, and one of Toronto's oldest buildings. The lighthouse is perhaps best known for the demise of its first keeper, German-born John Paul Redemoller, uh, whose 1815 murder forms the basis of Toronto's most enduring ghost story. Recent research has verified many aspects of the traditional tale of his death and identified the soldiers charged with, but ultimately uh, acquitted of the crime. So a bit of its history, authorized in 1803 with two other lighthouses by an act of the Le Legislative Assembly of Upper Canada, as we were Upper Canada and Quebec was Lower Canada. And I always get those two mixed up. I don't know why, but I do. Construction of the Gibraltar Point Lighthouse did not begin until 1808. It was built to a height of 52 feet or 16 meters and extended to 82 feet or 25 meters in 1832. The diameter ranges from about seven meters, 23 feet at the base to about 2.1 meters or 6.9 feet at the top. The base is made from stone quarried in Queenston and the extension from Kingston stone. The lighthouse constructed and maintenance was paid for through a harbor fee levied upon all boats entering the harbor. When completed in August 1809, the lighthouse was located uh, 25 feet or 7.6 meters from the shore. Since then, sand has built up over time, so it now stands about 100 meters or 110 yards from uh, the shore. When opened, the lighthouse was accompanied by the lighthouse keeper's cottage. It was a square log house clad in clapboard. It was two stories, having two rooms on the first floor and sleeping space in the attic above. When ships approached, the lighthouse keeper would run up a flag to notify the Toronto Harbour Master. The cottage no longer exists. The tower light was initially an oak and glass cage illuminated by candles. The tower switched to sperm oil from 1832 and switched to coal in 1863. The original lamp structure was wood and replaced with steel in 1878. An electric light was installed in 1916 to 1917 and updated in 1945. In 1958, Metro Parks took over operations and made renovations in 1961 and 1962. It's currently unused uh, and is occasionally open for public tours, including the annual Doors Open Toronto Weekend. 
since the decommissioning of the lighthouse, smaller automated lighthouses to lake located in Humber Bay Park in the west and the Bluffers Park to the east, Toronto Harbor Light, as well as Floating Bell or Light Voice, uh, navigational masts have been used to, to replace the lighthouse to provide national aid along Toronto's waterfront in Toronto Harbor. So the spooky stories behind this particular lighthouse. So in one of the oldest buildings in the city, uh, it is home to eerily local lore about a murdered 19th century lighthouse keeper. Anyone who grew up in Toronto remembers the lighthouse ghost story. It was a highlight of student field trips to the island school and could give you shivers even on the warmest summer day. And now the Island Park is open again for the summer. A new generation of Toronto kids can learn the spooky story. The lighthouse is the oldest one uh, left on the Great Lakes. And the actually it's the second oldest one in Canada. The lighthouse was there uh, during the Battle of York in 1813, when American ships invaded the town of York, which culminated with the burning of the par Parliament buildings, the British retaliated later in the War of 1812 and burned the, the White House down. During the war, the first lighthouse keeper, J.P. Uh, Ruda Muller, sometimes spelled Raiden Muller, Radel Muller, or Rattle. Muller, a German immigrant to Upper Canada, kept watch at Gibraltar Point for enemy ships and friendly vessels returning to, to a safe harbor, but he didn't live to see the end of the war. He disappeared under mysterious circumstances on January 2nd, 1815. The story goes that he was murdered by two soldiers who had been enjoying his home brew beer. Versions of the story differ slightly. One version told in the mid-2000s was that he was killed after the soldiers bought the beer, but saw it freeze on the cold winter night and assumed that the alcohol content was so low that the lighthouse keeper was trying to rip them off. But most agree that he was killed that night and dismembered by his killers who buried his body in a few graves near the lighthouse. His ghost is said to still haunt the site. The story was recorded by John Ross Robertson in 1908 in Landmarks of Toronto and has been a staple of spooky local lore ever since. Even in his telling, Robertson raises skepticism that the murder ever occurred, but he writes that he heard the story from the local lighthouse keeper, the current one, George Durnham, who had apparently gone looking for a body and had dug up a coffin with a jawbone. The plaque at the lighthouse mentions the ghost story and the jawbone, although this was a somewhat controversial decision. The lighthouse has a non-ghostly history as well. It sits on Gibraltar Point, although silt buildup means that the tower is now slightly inland from the shore, although the flooding on the islands may change the coastline yet again. It was named Gibraltar after the famous British-owned point at the edge of the Mediterranean by John Graves Simcoe, Ontario's first lieutenant governor and the founder of the town of York, who also chose it as the site for one of the new lighthouses he was planning along the Great Lakes. The tower is built from limestone quarried near Queenston, like we spoke about, and the light on the top changed a few times over the years. 
It's <clears throat> the 10 keepers of the lighthouse, including George Durnham and his father, James, who kept watch there from 1832 to 1908, saw many changes from Gibraltar Point. The city grew, new immigrants arrived in ships. The peninsula became the islands where when a storm fully separated the sandbar in 1858. Families moved from the mainland and in more recent years, the islands became a park and a favorite summer destination. The lighthouse keepers saw it all. And as a 2008 Heritage Toronto plaque at the site points out, the keepers and their families formed the nucleus of a growing island community. Although the lighthouse is no longer in use and is usually locked, it is still a keeper. It still has a keeper. Manuel Kappel, also from Germany, has been the honorary keeper since 1999 when he volu volunteered to keep the lighthouse tidy. Now, the Toronto Islands also now have its own um, airport, actually, fun fact. So, more on this mysterious murder and the ghost. So, he, like we spoke about, went missing in 1815, but unexplained lights in the windows, strange bloodstains on the staircase, and his short, shadowy form gliding along the sand by the moonlight. For those who believe it's haunted, these are just some of the signs that ghost dwells in the walls of a lighthouse in Toronto Island. It's been over 200 years since lighthouse keeper J.P. Radden Muller disappeared from his post at the Gibraltar Lighthouse, but the whereabouts of his remains continue to be a mystery. Legend has it that on a cold night in 1815, one day after New Year's, German-born Radden Muller, who was said to have supplemented his income by buying his own beer, was killed by some soldiers thirsty for his sons. As the story goes, there was a garrison of soldiers close to where the Hanlon's Island ferry docks stand today, who are said to have been regular customers of Radden Muller's. The War of 1812 had just officially concluded, and while the various agreements would have been signed in Europe, soldiers remained on the island. They no doubt needed these rugged guys who would have been able to defend the harbor. Uh, Richard Finesse Clinton, a guide with Muddy York Tours, explained on CBC radios here and now today. They did their best to cover the evidence. It was just after New Year's, the harbor was very well, could have been frozen. It was very, very cold. There wouldn't have been much else to do. Certainly drinking the night away seems like it may have been a possibility. It is said that a group of soldiers were were doing just that when Radden Miller cut them off. But they didn't feel that they were quite finished yet. And according to the main story, they chased him up to the top of the lighthouse and they had him, they held an altercation. The exact details are lost in history, but after that night, Radden Miller was never seen again, at least not in the flesh. Nearly 16 meters high at the time, the area at the top of the lighthouse was very small. Apparently, they struck him over the head and they ejected his body out of the lighthouse. That is a very vivid terminology. <laughs> ejected him from the lighthouse. Oh, jeez. 
And when they discovered that he died, they did their best to cover the evidence and dismember him and dismembered him and tried to bury him and dispose of his body. And that's really the crux of the story. The incident was recorded in 1815 edition of the York's Gazette newspaper. And while a couple of soldiers were accused of the crime, no one did ever face justice. For almost 82 years, the lighthouse was kept by well-known Toronto a well-known Toronto Island family. In 1904, then lighthouse keeper George Gurnham is said to have discovered human remains believed to be those of Brandon Miller, Muller and reburied them. But if that happened, the grave's whereabouts are unknown today. No DNA testing was ever done, according to uh, Fiennes Clinton, in 15, or sorry, in 1958, CBC uh, News spoke to last of the Gibraltar Lighthouse keepers, D.B. Dodds. Incidentally, she told the CBC at the time it got its name because John Graves Simcoe, the governor of Canada, when it was built, believed Toronto Island could be fortified as strongly as the legendary Rock of Gibraltar. Dodds said that the first time she had never met a ghost sorry, sorry. Dodds said at the time she'd never met a ghost herself but was liable to be spooked herself at least once the legend persists when the moon is full it reflected back from the top of the lighthouse the spring when i was riding by on my bike i was startled to see the light when the navigation system was closed it wasn't for a few seconds that i realized the moon was full it gave me a startle Dodds said I've never met the ghost, but I can understand how the legend persists. The cooing of the pigeons is very eerie on the dark night, and the wind howling through the lighthouse gives you the shivers. In charge of the site for three years before it closed in 1958, Dodds wondered if the legend of Radden Muller's ghost would persist after Gibraltar closed. They're going to build a new light, but I wonder with the new light if the old legend will die, she wondered aloud. At the time, apparently not. Finesse Clinton was eager, a visitor still captivated by the mystery of the soldiers who finished that day in 1815. So that was the Gibraltar Lighthouse story. Uh, again, not much is on it, but um, it is a staple at Toronto Harbor. Um, and you can actually see it uh, when you go up the CN Tower. Um, specifically, if you're going up to like the rotating restaurant, but you can also see it from the observation decks as well. And I got my information from cbc.ca, uh, trotoist.com, and a small, small portion from Wikipedia. Um, but that that story and all the Toronto ghostiness makes me really want to take that uh, Toronto haunted walk tour with you. Oh yeah. So I'm going to read you a, a story called Diary of a Poltergeist. Ooh. So please bear with me as I stutter through this story. I just studied, I pause, studied through the last story, so at least they've got some. Time. And if I, and if I pause, it's because I'm I'm being Tinderella. So, <laughs> what? 
<laughs> Tinderella. Paul Luthold is a man in his late 40s with a pleasant personality and a reasonably good educational background. Um, Perhaps better read than most farmers in other countries, but certainly far from sophistication or knowledgeability in in areas of philosophy or the occult. He has a wife and two children, a son now in his 17th year and a daughter a few years younger. Life on the Luthold Farm, a modest-sized establishment consisting of a house, stables, acreage, and perhaps two dozen cattle housed in the stables directly across the farmhouse on a narrow street in the little village of Smushdrowden. Next door to the Luthold homestead stands the house of the Ettenberg family. Mr. Ettenberg, 50, was an active spiritualist, a rarity in Switzerland. His wife, 45, is a simple woman without any interest in, in the subject. And there were four children ranging in age from three to nine years at the time. At first, the strange events only puzzled the Luthold family, and they did not suspect that anything unusual was happening. But when no human agency could be found responsible for the moving objects, disappearances and reappearances, and other obviously mischievous actions in and around the house and stables, it dawned on Luthold that he was uh, the victim of a poltergeist, and he began to take notes. Between November 12th, 1960 and August 20th, 1961, no less than 104 separate entries were made by him in his diary of a poltergeist. They were brief, to the point, and without any attempt at a rational explanation that he left four others to ponder over. His first entry dates from November 12th, 1960. November 12th, 6 p.m. The large metal milk can has moved three yards to the west. The same time, stones are thrown against the window. No one there. November 13th, 6 p.m. The milk container with 18 liters of milk in it has disappeared. We find it again at a far corner of the stables. November 14th, 16, or 6 p.m. Neighbor Etchenberg's umbrella stand disappears and the scraper usually at the staircase is found outside against the wall. Same day, half an hour later, two boots disappear from the stables and are later found in the feeding area behind the potato rack. Mr. Ittenberger, the neighbor, brings our pig bucket, which she found, she found in the cellar next to their umbrella stand. My wife had fed the pigs barely 10 minutes before and left the pig bucket in the stables. How did it get to their cellar? Every day now, something disappears, moves from the accustomed uh, spot and reappears at a strange place. So such things are milking accessories, um, very necessary for daily work of a farmer, are, are not where they should be, and this interrupts the normal life on the farm. Two bicycles are suddenly without air in their tires. Most of these events take place around 6 or 7 p.m. <sighs> Where am I? The Swiss television network had evinced great interest in my work. Although they had never heard of the Massachusetts case or for the matter of any other psychic investigation, it took the Americans, American, uh, it took an American to bring the entire area to their attention. And roughly Jacob Fisher, the production head, agreed to send a crew to the farm. I skipped a whole bunch because um, there's a lot of. 
But we won't pay for this, you understand. He added with careful Swiss frugality. The next afternoon, my wife and I joined two newsreel reporters, one handling the camera and the other the sound equipment in the station wagon. We rode along the outskirts of Zurich over a couple of hills and out into the open country to the west of the city. It took us more than an hour to get to the Mestwade Inn, a village very few people, especially Americans, ever visit. When we reached the Lethold farmhouse, we were expecting uh, we were expected. While the telephone people started to set up their equipment, I lost no time asking Paul Lethwood about Lethwood about the most memorable incident in the haunting of his house. My wife and I were inside the house. Suddenly, there was a knock at the door, which sounded as if it was made by a hard object. Are you laughing about how I'm reading this? <laughs> the maid was downstairs in her room, and she didn't see anyone either. My wife went back to her work. Soon, there was a third set of knocks. The, this time, she was alerted and kept close to the door. As soon as she heard the knocking, she jumped outside. Did she see anything or anyone? I asked. She saw a piece of wood about a yard in length hitting the ground from a height of about a foot. You mean a piece of wood moving through the air by itself? Yes. The wooden stick was there in the air all by itself. Nobody could have thrown it and run away. It was plain daylight, too. I examined the wooden stick. It was a heavy piece of wood, weighing perhaps half a pound. How did the whole thing get started, Mr. Lethwood? I asked, and he brought his diary and showed me an entry. November 18th, 5.15 p.m. <laughs> the cover of the milk can is found in Inside the barn on the grassy floor. Fifteen minutes earlier, I had left it in a place in in place in uh, in the stable. The next day, he added, the cover was again found in the ash can. Charming, I said. May I see the book? The entries follow each other in the orderly, um, clinical manner of a medical history. Only the patient was invisible. November nineteenth, five a.m. I plug in the motor of the cider press and leave it to do my milking chores. Suddenly there is a singe, is, is a singe boot in the middle of the barn. The milking pail floats in the water trough. I decided to check on the cider press. I hear the motor sputtering as I reach the cellar. I find the plug pulled out and the cable pulled back about four yards. I think the way I read the story is quite enthralling. I can't Oh my god. <laughs> no. It, you mean my story's not good? Are you kidding me? It's amazing. Here's TJ asked if I was good, and I said no. Stephanie's <laughs> reading it. <laughs> Ready? <clears throat> I'm going to keep going. The day was a particularly busy one for the ghosts. At 7.30 a.m., Lethold finishes his first meal and returns to the stables. I turn the light on and fetch a container full of unthrashed corn, which I place inside the barn in front of the door leading to the stables. Alfie, the maid, is busy washing milking equipment 
at a considerable distance in the feed kitchen. I leave for a moment to go to the bathroom. When I return, I find the light turned out in the container of unfreshed corn gone. I find it upside down in the middle of the barn, and next to it, a broom, which had not been there before either. But that wasn't the end of it, by a long shot. That busy morning, half hour later, Miss Lethold appeared in the barn and asked where his watch was. Or Mr. Lethold appeared in the barn. Where it always is, Lethold replied, somewhat cross, on the window latch where I always hang it when I clean the cattle. Not so, his wife replied, and dangled the watch and chain before his eyes. She had just found them in front of the stables on top of a milk can. The very evening, that very evening, one of their cows was due to give birth. Consequently, it was necessary to have all the help available present for the occasion. But the poltergeist was among them. Nine p.m. The following are present to help with the birth. School teacher Strickler, Max Studer, Junior Warner Wielder, my wife, Elfie the Maid, my son Paul, and myself are in the stables. The spout of the milking machine disappears under our eyes. We search and finally find it tucked away in the aluminum shelf that holds the rubber nipples. My wife sends Elfie to lock the house while we are all over here. The maid returns, the key is gone. Later we find it in the window sill outside. We had just left it and then the lock on the inside. By midnight, it was all over. The calf had come and the Lethfolds went to bed. But the uncanny phenomena did not cease. From the direction of the pigsty, there was a loud whistling sound. It changed direction from time to time. There are people in front of the house still up who hear it too. Elsie cool. the maid complains about the noises. The moment she is out of the house, the whistling stops. By 2 a.m., all is finally quiet. I asked Mr. Lethfold to show me the ash can in which the milk bottle cover was found, and the potato bin. All was quiet now for a few days, and the mysterious event started up again. <coughs> December 1st, 6.30 p.m. I open the door to the stables to my milking chores. Everything is normal. My wife arrives a few moments later and opens the same door. This time, a hay fork is leaning against it from the outside. Where is the plate for the cat? My wife wants to know. Next to the milk can, as always, I reply. It isn't. My wife finds the plate on top of the, of the refuse. The light goes on and off by itself. No, thank you. You know, I don't think me and a poltergeist would get along. Just by the sounds of it. You know... I've never had, I, you know, I think I've never had to actually deal with pol poltergeist. No, you know what? I have. When? Whatever was it, Nick's used to like to throw things. I had scratching. Pushing. It's, it scratched you? It scratched him. Ow. Rude. Um, we were playing Monopoly and he was teasing. It always used to happen when he was teasing either Kaylin or I. And so he would yeah. be he was teasing us. Uh I remember distinctly, like we were playing Monopoly. There's two times I remember distinctly. One time we were playing Monopoly and he was winning and teasing us about it, and he got scratches on his arm. And I can tell you exactly because I was on the other side 
of the table where he couldn't get at. And Kalen was sitting at the end of the table. He was across from us. And neither Kalen or I scratched him. Like, it definitely was something else. It was on his right arm, and his left arm was closest to Kalen. There was nothing on his other side, and he ended up with scratches. And I distinctly remember the other time, I think the other time was before the Monopoly time, he was lying with his back to the TV where I remember this distinctively. We were watching the 2010 Winter Olympics and he was sitting with his back up against like the TV thing. And yeah, and he has trouble <clears throat> rolling himself over from, from one side to the other because he can't because of the way his back is set up because of the metal rods in his back. And he got shoved into the TV stand because their TV stand is huge out in the main room and Kaylin and I were sitting yeah. on the couches and you know Kaylin she has to get into her wheelchair in order to do anything and I was sitting on the couch farthest from him and he got shoved into bookcase that is oh. the TV stand and I remember yeah. those two very distinctly because he cannot roll that way that fast, if at all. Yeah. Because of the way his back is. And so oh. there were two very strange occurrences. So I've. Oh. So I, I'm editing this story. Um, so I'm skipping ahead. <laughs> okay. I am editing the slash skipping. Okay. Sounds good. And so it went. Every day, something else moved about. The kitchen feed pot, or the boots, or the milk can. The lights kept going on and off merrily. Something or someone knocks at the door. If there is never anyone outside, nobody can knock and run out of, out of sight. The yard between house and barn and the village street can easily be checked for human visitors. The milk cart disappears and reappears. The washroom window is taken off its hinges and thrown to the floor. The manure rake moves from the front of the barn to the inside of the washroom. The big style gate is opened by unseen hands. The pigs promenade around the kitchen, chicken house. Lights keep going on and off. Even Christmas did not help the goings on. December 24, 3 p.m. My cousin Ernest got tree and I are talking in the stables when suddenly the light goes on in the middle of the afternoon at 5.30 p.m. I enter the barn to give the cows their hay when I notice the lights go on by themselves in the old barn. I go back immediately and find the dog howling pitifully at the light switch. Ow! I went on to the house to see if anyone was outside, but nobody left even the mo- for a moment. My son Paul returns with me to the barn. I, it was he who had left the dog tied up outside half an hour earlier. Now he, he is tied up inside the barn and the barn door is locked tight. How did the dog get inside? Evidently, the poltergeist had now begun to turn his attentions towards the dog. Not the dog! December 25th, 7.30 a.m. The dog is found locked in the stables, yet half an hour ago... Not my buttons! Not my gumdrop buttons! (laughs) Elfie left him roaming freely outside after giving him his food. February 2nd, 5 a.m. I went to the stables and the dog, which... Um, slept in the barn followed me into the stables he became noisy and one of the calves seemed to get frightened so I said to the dog go outside at once as I am turning around to open the door back into the barn for him to let him out I see him already outside the barn who opened the door for him because I didn't 
The children also got their attention from the uh, obnoxious spirit. The same day, February 2nd, Leffold reported it in his diary. February 2nd, 6.15 p.m., the three sleds, which normally are stacked in the corner of the barn, are found across the manure trough. The Lefolds took their unseen visitors in stride, always hoping it would go away as it had as it had come. The spiritualist neighbor insisted that Leo the ghost, as they had dubbed it, was somehow connected to El with Elfie's with Elfie, a notion the Lefolds rejected instantly since they were in the excellent position to vouch for the maid's honesty and non-involvement with the phenomena. It continued unabated. March 14th, 6 a.m. The window in the dining room is taken from its hinges and found in the flower pot in the front of the house, 7.30 a.m. My slipper disappears from the barn and it reappears in another part of the stables beneath the shoe shelf. March 29th, 7.30 a.m. The dog lies in the yard. A few minutes later, he is locked into the old stables. Everybody in the house is questioned and encountered and accounted for. And nobody could have done it. 7 p.m. Alfie and I empty the skimmed milk into the four pails, which we then place next to the door of the pig's diet. 9 p.m. We find the four pails directly in front of the door. This ice is just rude. Alfie got married in April and presumably her uncommitted vital energies were no longer free to be used in poltergeist activities. But the Mastudin ghost did not obey the standard rules laid down by the psychic researchers. The disturbances went on, Alfie or no Alfie. August 9th. They skipped both of our birthdays. I think that's very rude. It is very rude. Morning, as I clean my boots, I find below the inner sole a small tie pin, which I had missed for three months. August 10th, 5.30 p.m. A pitchfork is left stuck in, stuck in a bag of mineral salt. It took two men to pull it out. Half an hour before the same fork was still in the barn. August 19th, 4.45 a.m. Angelo, the Italian worker for us, misses one of his boots. He finds it three yards distance inside the barn and a heavy pitchfork on top of it. Rude! How many pairs of shoes does this poor guy have? Very rude. Rude. Similar events took place for another few weeks. Then it gradually became quiet again around the Luffold farm. I looked around the house, the stables, the barn. I talked to all members of the family except the Italian, who had only shared their lives briefly, and Elsie, who had left long ago for wedded bliss. I asked, did anyone violently die in the house? Paul Luffold Sr. thought for a moment. About 10 years ago, we had an Italian working for us. His bride was a motorcycle, but he could not afford insurance. One day... He decided to return to Italy with some friends for a vacation to get an early start. They would leave around three in the morning. The night before, my mother warned him, be careful and don't get home with your hand, head under your arm, he replied, shrugging. If I am dead, it doesn't matter either. Well, I guess. He stared, started an hour late the next morning. When he got to the St. Gothard, his motorcycle started to kick up. The other fellows went ahead on on ahead and promised to wait for him at the height of the mountain. He went to the garage and had his machine fixed. Determined not to miss his colleagues, he would have been better off had he stayed behind. For a short time later, a piece of rock fell up down onto the road and killed him instantly. Do you think it may be his ghost that is causing all of this, I asked? No, I don't, Lethill assured me. I'm only wondering who is doing it. I gathered that Lethold had some suspicions about his neighbors. Could an act of spiritualist cause such phenomena to happen? Not a spiritualist, I assure him, but maybe a black magician. 
Nobody had died violently in the house or farm, but then an older house, which we know nothing about, may have stood on the spot. The household children are now beyond the age of puberty where their untapped energies might have contributed to the power to make the phenomena occur. My guess is that both Elfie and the children supplied the energy. When Elfie left and only the children were available, the phenomena gradually faded away. They have not returned since. They are not likely to, unless, of course, another unwitting supplier of such energy moves into the house. The discarnate personality behind this disturbances may still be lurking about, untamed, waiting for another chance. If this happens, Mr. Lethold can be that the ghost hunter will be on hand, too. So nothing really crazy happened with the, that poltergeist. But that's my story. And it's from the book, Ghosts, True Encounters with the World Beyond. Haunted Places, Haunted Houses, Haunted People by Hans Holzer. I've got one more um, cryptid-ish. Um... I don't think you would call it, I've talked about it before. Um, I'm talking about that lovely little thing that Stephen and I like to talk about, a tulpa. So, um, the one that we're specifically talking about is the theosophical term. It is a concept of theosophy, mysticism, and the paranormal of an object of a being or object which is created through spiritual or mental powers. Modern practitioners use the term to refer to a type of willed imagined being which practitioners consider to be sentient or relatively independent. Talpas have thoughts, emotions, and personality separate from their host. People who have one or more talpa or talpromancers Tulpas can be created either with a collection of meditative techniques or accidentally when someone has an imaginary friend that persists later in life. Thought form of the music, Nod, according to Annie Versant and C.W. Leadbeater in Thought Forms in 1901, uh, 20th century Theo Theosophists adapted the Ryanen concept of the emanation body in the concept of tulpa and thought form. The theosophist Annie Besnett in the 1901 book Thought Forms divides them into three classes, forms in the shape of the person who creates them, forms that resemble objects or people and may become ensouled by nature spirits or by the dead, and forms that represent inherent qualities of the astral or mental planes, such as emotions. The, terms from thought, the term thought form is also used in Evan Wentz's 1927 translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. The concept is also used in the Western practice of magic. Occultist William Walker Atkinson, in his book, The Human Aura, Aura described thought forms as simple earthreal objects emanating from the auras surrounding people, generating from their thoughts and feelings. He further elaborated in clairvoyance and occult powers how experienced practitioners of the occult can produce thought forms from their auras that serve as astral projections, which may or may not look like the person who is projecting them 
or as illusions that can only be seen by those with awakened astral senses. Spiritualist Alexandra David Neal stated that she has observed these mystical practices in 20th century Tibet. She described talpas as magical, or sorry, as magic formations generated by a powerful concentration of thought. David Neal believed that a tulpa could develop a mind of its own once the tulpa is endowed with enough vitality to be capable of playing the part of a real being, it tends to free itself from its maker's control. According to David Neal, this happened nearly this happens nearly mechanically, just as the child, which her body is completed and able to live apart, leaves its mother's womb. She said she created such a tulpa in the image of a jolly friar tuck-like monk, which later developed a life of its own and had to be destroyed. David Neal raised the possibility that her experience was illusionary. Uh, I may have created my own hallucination, though she said others could see the thought forms she created. In 2009, the term started to be used to refer to a type of willed imaginary friend. Practitioners or tulpomancers consider these to be sentiment and relatively autonomous online communities dedicated to tulpas spawned on the 4chan and Reddit websites. These communities collectively refer to themselves as topomancers and offer guides and support for others. The communities gained popularity when adult fans of My Little Pony created forums for talpas of characters from the My Little Pony television series. The phone fans attempted to use meditation and lucid dreaming techniques to create imaginary friends. Surveys by Viseri explored a community demographic, social and psychological profiles. These individuals calling themselves tulpamancers treat the tulpas as a real or somewhat real person. The number of active participants in these online communities is in the low hundreds and few meetings in person have taken place. They belong to primary urban middle-class Euro-American adolescent and young adult demographics and they cite loneliness and social anxiety as an incentive to pick up the practice. 93.7% of respondents expressed their involvement with the creation of tulpas as made their condition better and led to new unusual sensory experiences. Some practitioners have sexual and romantic interactions with their tulpas, though the practice is controversial and trending towards taboo. One survey found that 8.5% support a metaphysical explanation of tulpas, 76.5% support a neurological and psychological explanation, and 14% other explanations, in quotes. Characteristics, tulpas are able to communicate with their host. Sometimes this communication is done with alien feeling, thoughts in which they sense thoughts that are distinctly not their own. Some tulpamancers may experience hallucinations of their tulpas. This includes auditory, visual, tactile, and olfactory hallucinations. Tulpamancers have, that have hallucinations may be able to see, hear, and touch the tulpas. Some tulpamancers visualize a mindscape or wonderland that their tulpa can be in. For the host, visualizing the mindscape may feel like daydreaming, 
Nebogia or lucid dreaming. And for the Tulpa, they can explore the mindset and Tulpamancer can use this to interact with the Tulpa. Possession is where the Tulpa takes control of, a, of the body. When possessing the host experiences depersonalization and the Tulpa either gains control of part of the body has control of the body alongside the host or switches places with the host taking full control of the body. Topos cannot possess without the hosts allowing them and possession can be achieved with meditation. Uh, in society and the medical community though, having multiple personalities are widely seen as a sign of mental illness. Although having Tulpa doesn't fit the diagnostic criteria for any mental disorder, Tulpamancers are often confused as having dissociative identity disorder or schizophrenia. A survey of 203 Tulpamancers performed by uh, R. Tulpas asked if their use have been diagnosed with mental or disorder. Uh, depression, 59%. Anxiety, 44%. ADHD, 28%, autism, 21%, PTSD, 9%, bipolar disorder, 7%, and 6% are of personality orders. In Samuel Vasari's survey of 141 Tulpa ministers, he noticed that the rates of autism, ADD, and ADHD in Tulpermancers is significantly higher than the general population. He goes on to speculate that many people may have been more likely to want to make a topa because these groups have a higher level of loneliness. 93.7% of topomancers who have been diagnosed with a mental disorder said that their topa has made their condition better. And I got all of that information from Wikipedia because really you can't find much on, on topas. But that's all I have for, for you for topas. Not did you just say not prepared? Not very much. Uh, also not prepared. Not not as prepared as I could have been. I feel like. Anyway, um, you you said that um, Jessica had some fun? Yeah. <laughs> I told you about it a couple... I told you about it like a month ago because yes, I was excited for the tutorial class and me... then I realized... Yeah. Yeah. Then you told me, like, you tell me more on the podcast. Yeah. So, before Jessica has found her newest home, which she likes, next to my baby Yoda collection and Hecate. Of course, um, of course. Don't, don't be creepy at all course. about Jessica. Stop. <laughs> uh, on top of my bookshelf that houses all of my witchy books. Um, she would uh, find I would find her in different places. So, like you would put her in one, and she would end up in different places. Another. Oh, okay. So the one day I walked into the bedroom, so I I left for the day. I left her on the chair. There okay. was a chair in the corner of the room, so I left her there, and that's where I'd been leaving her. Okay. And then I come home and go to bed. And it's like nine o'clock when I go to bed. Yeah. Uh, and um, wouldn't you know it, Jessica was on the bed. <laughs> I'm sorry, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, not- she was on the bed 
in the center. Okay. And I look, I look right at her and I go, I'm like, what the hell do you think you're doing? And to be fair, in because my I- house, it might not be as weird because Raven can hit everything, but it's not like Luna could take her off the chair and put her on the bed. Yeah. Luna's not big enough to yeah. do that. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah, and I doubt Luna, if she were enough, could be able to pay- place her so perfectly. Okay? Fair. Fair. Oh, that's so creepy. Um, And then the next day, I put her back in the chair. Okay. And then the next day, because um, I, I had a chat with her, and I said, that's not cool. That's and... not cool. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's not cool. Don't do that. And um, I come home, and she's not in the chair again. I look around everywhere. Can't fucking find her. Really? Not even on the bed? So, so I just, not even on the bed, not under okay. the bed, not in the closet, just oh, nowhere. Oh, okay. So, um, I go to bed and I'm just like, Jessica, don't do this. Don't be a bitch. <laughs> and you actually ask her not I go to be to a bed bitch? And I wake up to find her in. Yeah, of course I did. Do you not know me at all? True. Uh, fair enough. I did. I did. So where and, did you And I woke up the next morning and found her in the corner. Just she was right in the corner, in the corner next corner? to my bed. Okay. I had looked there. Uh, okay. So I was a little annoyed. Because yeah. I'm like, bitch, what you what you doing moving around while I'm yeah, just standing in the corner. Just nonchalantly, like she didn't do anything wrong. Um yeah, so Jessica's been moving around doing her thing. I keep also I keep hearing like humming every now and then. Oh, yeah, like it's just a, um, a humming. She doesn't mm-hmm. usually make too much noise. Yeah. Was that all you had to tell me about Jessica? Uh, yeah. Okay. She's been quiet since I put her in her new home. So she likes her new home. Okay. She must. Okay, so that's all we have for you today. If you remember any creepy weird stories or want any double troubles or need anything from either of us you can always email us at truenorthwitches at gmail.com you can also catch us on facebook at true north witches you can find us on twitter where we have maybe one one tweet one tweet uh, at true north witches on TikTok at True North Witches. Where uh, we do post, because I just posted. Uh, you can also find us on YouTube uh, at True North Witches, um, where we have some trailers uh, and things like that. Um, but uh, we need more subscribers if you want to see full episodes on the YouTube. So, uh, let's on Instagram at True North Widgets. On Patreon, patreon.com forward slash TNW podcast, or search us up in the search bar at True North Witches. We also have some little treats for you up there already. <laughs> um, 
um, I've got our <laughs> incense. Uh, Sorry, guys. I was just um, <laughs> making Brooke. We've got our incense incense video up there, um, and I'm going to put some of the pictures of Stephanie has sent us, and I found some EVP sessions from one of our other podcasts, which I'm going to put specifically up on there so you can support the podcast. There's a $1 tier up to, I think we've got up to a $10 tier right now, and we know times are tough, but we've got those for you, so check that out there um, at True North, which is on Patreon. You can also, um, now you can find us uh, on Etsy at our True North Occult Shop. Um, so if you have any, say you want a tarot reading done, or you're looking for that perfect gift for that friend that's been down lately, or the perfect gift for you, <laughs> check us out on, on Etsy. And then you can also find us on our website, www.truenorthwitches.com. But that's all we have for you for this creepy cats. And you'll see us in our next episode. Uh, you have a wonderful week, witches. And we'll see you in the next episode. Blessed be. Bye. Blessed be. Bye.